Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Seminole Tribe historian and new author Willie Johns has died. If we silence ourselves and don't participate, we will not have to get the opportunity to tell our side of the story the way we want to be told. We'll discuss the development of tourism at Panama City Beach. It didn't really grow organically. This was a concerted effort to develop the area and to bring people into Bay County. And we'll visit the African-American community in Apopka. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Willie Johns was born in 1951 and was a lifelong resident of Okeechobee, Florida. He served as Chief Justice of the Seminole Tribe and Tribal Historian. Willie Johns died on October 20th, and just one week before, the new book that he co-authored with Seminole War historians John and Mary Lou Missel was published. The book is called What We Have Endured, a novel of the Seminole Wars, and tells the story of the conflict from the Seminole perspective. When we last spoke with Willie Johns on Florida Frontiers, he said he had always had a thirst for knowledge about the history of his people, but no one talked much about it while he was growing up. My immediate families were too busy trying to survive that the historical reference to them went out the window. And then when it came my turn to ask the questions, nobody seemed to know. Like I had to do a thesis for the Athotiki Museum on Osceola. And we thought it would be cool to go and do all oral interviews with the elders. And when we asked about Osceola, what did you hear? And a lot of them said little or nothing. You know, they, you know, he's mentioned, but he's not mentioned in any power or any excitement movement. It's just, yeah, we heard about him. But yet on in the other culture, I'm reading, uh, yeah, this is a powerful guy, you know, and he swung a big stick. And when he swung it, everybody paid attention. But back in my little lonely village, nobody was talking about it. They were just too busy trying to feed their families and survive. During his senior year in high school, Willie Johns realized that he didn't know what it meant to be a Seminole. This epiphany led him to start asking questions and undertake independent research. I didn't know hardly anything about myself. I didn't know who I was. I mean, they called me a Seminole kid, you know, but 
what is a Seminole kid? You know, where do you, who is he? Where'd he come from? Who's his people? What'd they do? You know, I didn't know all that. And so I started studying, started talking to people who I thought knew, and I started reading all the good uh, ethno history that Sturdivant and several of the uh, old, older writers wrote about Florida, Spencer, you know, all these guys. And uh, I started come to realize, you know, wow, we missed a whole, you know, a whole culture or, or a whole part of our life here that uh, went void. So I started digging in and started learning and started asking questions and started pitching it to people my age and, you know, and they're looking at me like, wow, you know. And uh, then later on, you know, I, as I learned more, I, all of a sudden I got caused a division within my own people. Some started calling me a textbook historian because a lot of my history wasn't coming from the elders, and so when when I get that when I had that labeled on me, and I always throw it back, throw that back at those people that use that word. I always say, you know, if you know something, tell me. If not, you know, back off. Willie Johns said that while oral traditions passed down by tribal elders are extremely important, as time goes on, the Seminole depend more on traditional research and books to preserve their history. I'm a senior now. <laughs> Back when I started, I wasn't. And all those seniors that were living at my time really didn't have a whole lot to give me other than the fact, you know, they gave me a good culture. You know, they gave me a good culture background, but no no historical relevance of how we came to Florida, who we was fighting, what we was fighting for, because I guess after the Third Seminole War, we kind of went in seclusion, and we stayed away, and we just tried to maintain and survive in the Everglades and then through the reservation period just doing whatever we could to make it. Willie Johns represented the Seminole tribe during planning for recent statewide recognitions of Spanish colonial history, such as the 500th anniversary of the naming of our state in 2013. Some Seminoles didn't believe that such milestones should be celebrated, but Willie Johns saw them as educational opportunities. There's a big split, and uh, it, we have a, a group out there that protests all the time that are they're against the whole thing because of the atrocities that were placed on native people at that time and i keep telling them you know if we silence ourselves and don't participate we will not have the get the opportunity to tell our side the story the way we want to be told Instead, they will tell it for us. And we need to take that opportunity to hang in there with them, see what they're telling, and if it fits us good, not, we correct them. 
because we want everybody to know that Florida came with a price, a big price for the Spaniards, for the Native people, or especially the Native people. And uh, we don't want them to think that the conquistadors, the Spanish people, were great friends and we welcomed them. They came here and took this place, and we want them, we want the people that's involved in this to know these things. When the Spanish arrived in Florida more than 500 years ago, the advanced cultures already present here included the Apalachee, the Tamuqua, the Ais, the Calusa, the Tequesta, and many others. After contact with the Spanish, these tribes were eventually wiped out by disease and conquest. As a Seminole tribe historian, Willie Johns felt it was his responsibility to preserve the memory of these other tribes. In our tribe, we have a TIPO department, Tribal Histor Historical Preservation Office, and the federal government recognizes us as the caretakers of the ancient ones here in Florida. And so we, we take it serious. You know, Congress passed a, lo a law called NAPRAS, and it's uh, the repatriation of bones and such. And um, I've been involved with my tribe doing that. And uh, we've had several pieces brought back, and we're in the process of getting uh, like 65 skeletons back that were taken during the 1940s from uh, colleges in the East. And uh, so they're get, gradually coughing them up, you know, and we're gradually putting them back in the ground. But yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it is our responsibility, you know. There's no voice for them today, so our tribe takes that charge and that lead. The Seminole tribe was a branch of the Creek Indians who came south into Florida in the 1700s and were renamed Seminole. Willie Johns believed that some Seminole are descendants of Florida's original inhabitants. Some of them are. Some of them were adopted. After all the wars and everybody was kind of wandering around Florida trying to reorganize themselves and... Uh, a lot of small bands were running around, and they were placed into uh, Seminole Creek bands and Miccosukee bands were placed in their in their care. So a lot of the Bird Clan r received uh, a lot of the original people. Five centuries ago, the conquistadors brought disease and disruption to natives in Florida. Two centuries ago, Andrew Jackson worked aggressively to remove the Seminole from the state, first as territorial governor of Florida and later as president of the United States. As Willie Johns points out, Jackson's Indian Removal Act was not successful. Even the Supreme Court ruled against it. But Andy Jackson at the time had all the powers, and he told John Marshall, stop me. And nobody could stop him because those days they didn't have federal marshal, marshals and set to order a stop. So he, the uh, Indian Removal Act was born and, uh, and that meant that anybody east of the Mississippi and went all the way up to Maine to the tip of Key West uh, 
anybody east of the Mississippi River was in violation of the Indian removal. You know, they were trespassers. So lot left with no violence. Many left, you know, was had to be rounded up. Our people chose to fight. The three Seminole Wars are the focus of Willie John's new novel, What We Have Endured. The U.S. government could not defeat the Seminole, and efforts to remove them from the Florida Everglades were abandoned. Until just a few decades ago, many Seminole were living in poverty. That changed when the Seminole opened casinos and eventually acquired the entire Hard Rock franchise with venues around the world. It has uh, killed us but yet it has given us new life, you know, because the wealth grew too fast for the people and uh, they didn't know how to spend it. But yet it, it brought a new day for them for, you know, like modern medicine. We have our own medical clinics because of gaming and... Uh, we have our own police department, EMS, fire department, all the things that you need to have a successful city, we think, you know, and uh, so these newfound wealth has brought this for us. Seminole tribal historian Willie Johns died on October 20th his new book, co-authored with Seminole War historians John and Mary Lou Missile, is called What We Have Endured, a novel of the Seminole Wars. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Down here on the Redneck River Drinking beer and singing country songs Chilling with the motel door wide open Hoping something good will come along Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, Panama City Beach has been a popular vacation spot for about a century now, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. Panama City Beach, which is in Bay County. Bay County was actually only formed in the early 20th century in 1913. And the area, St. Andrews Bay, where Panama City Beach and Panama City are located, early on were really, they relied on the fishing industry. So it, it was the bay itself that really brought the earliest pioneers in the 19th century to the area. But as you said, in the 20th century, the nature of why people came to the area really shifted towards tourism. And that actually happened in the 1920s. So most of the area along the beaches or the southern end of St. Andrews Bay, what would now become Panama City Beach, was owned by the federal government. And it was actually homesteaded by some of these earlier developers and 
including W.H. Marshall, C.C. Mathis were some of the, the primary developers at that time. They came in, applied for homestead grants, believe it or not, all the way into the 1920s, acquired the beachfront property, and began developing the area to be used exclusively as a beach resort town. And actually, it was a series of towns, including Laguna Beach, Long Beach, and, and other places that were later consolidated into Panama City Beach. But at its very uh, early onset in the 1920s and 1930s, this whole area was billed as a vacation resort area. So unlike a lot of other places around Bay County, it didn't really grow organically. This was a concerted effort to develop the area and to bring people into Bay County. In fact, Federal Highway 98 that runs along the beach was one of the first paved roads in all of Bay County. And it was because of that tourism draw. They were trying to bring people into down to the Gulf from uh, areas as far north as northern Alabama from Birmingham. A lot of people came in and started investing money and used used the Panama City beaches as a vacation resort uh, area in the summertime. Well, as always, you have some interesting items from the Florida Historical Society archive here. This time, some travel brochures and it looks like postcards. Yeah, that's right, Ben. As part of the Ada E. Parish postcard collection, we have about somewhere near 17,000 Florida postcards. And if we look under Bay County, specifically under Panama City Beach, we have dozens of these very colorful beachside scenes. Here we're looking at one that says, enjoying the sands on Panama City Beach. And it looks like they were painted to look even whiter than they actually are. In fact, that was a big part of the early billing was we have the whitest beaches uh, of anywhere else in the world. And in fact, one of the early mayors of, I believe it was Long Beach, challenged any other municipality in the world to bring whiter sand to try and beat Panama City Beach. We're also looking at a color brochure. This is for Long Beach Resort, and this was printed in the mid-1960s. And the whole point, really, of this type of brochure was to not only bring folks down here for for short-term visits, but actually to sell properties. So as I mentioned, these early development tactics, they weren't bringing people down to motels and hotels and places like that originally, but they were actually beach cottages. They were homes. Uh, Some of them were large enough that they could, you know, host parties, and several families could rent the cottages for a month at a time, sort of like what you would see in in the Northeast and along uh, places like Long Island and places like that. They wanted folks to stay all summer or at least a month. You know, it became really a major part of a family's annual vacation lifestyle. They wanted them to come to Panama City Beach, kind of leave your life behind and just enjoy it for a month or so. So they were these really very well-established cinder block, sometimes wood frame cottages. And that's what they were trying to sell with a brochure like this. In fact, if we open it up, you can actually see there's an area where you could fill out, you know, your name and information and please give me more information about how I can rent or reserve at least one of these cottages for the entire summer. And early on, you know, Panama City Beach, the population just exploded during the summertime. And then in the wintertime, it really dropped off. And it was almost, you know, deserted. Like a lot of places, a lot of other resort towns throughout the country, it really kind of fell into that same process. And, and in 1970, a lot of the smaller municipalities got together and they consolidated into a single municipality that is now called Panama City Beach. So Laguna Beach, Long Beach, these places all kind of got together and, and formed their own chamber of commerce separate from the mainland. Again, that was all part of the, the marketing campaign and the marketing strategy. And in 1970, they created their own town, and that's what exists today. And although the area has changed a lot over the last century, it's still a popular vacation destination, right? 
Yeah, that's right. And it's affectionately called the the Redneck Riviera. <laughs> a lot of people from, as I said, from Alabama and Georgia spend their vacations in that part of Florida along the Gulf Coast. But now the landscape is uh, is changing again to kind of reflect the change in, in the types of visitors that are coming. So these aren't the long-term, month-long families that are staying in small cottages, although there are you know, still these, these small beachfront cottages that exist. Now they're much larger high-rise condominiums and timeshare resorts that are sort of dominating, dominating the skyline. And then, of course, today you also have issues with erosion. We're not a huge problem back then, but, but we're always kind of an issue. So after a major hurricane, some of these places survived, but a lot of them, unfortunately, had to be rebuilt or, or will not be rebuilt. So, so the nature of the area is changing a little bit. It is still developing, but it is absolutely one of Florida's top vacation destinations. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see the materials we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. Holly takes us to Apopka, northwest of Orlando, to learn about the history of the African-American community there. After the Civil War, a former slave named Sarah Mead encouraged black families to move to Apopka, Florida, a community northwest of Orlando to take advantage of economic opportunities in the citrus and farming industries. I recently spoke to Apopka Historical Society president and Apopka native, Francina Boykin, about early black settlers of Apopka and how they supported one another and sustained business relationships during the Jim Crow era. A woman who was a former slave settled in what is known as Mead's Bottom. Mead's Bottom was named after Sarah Mead and Lindsay Mead. They were husband and wife. Uh, Sarah and her husband homesteaded in the area now that is being developed into Apopka Town Center because Sarah came to Apopka from via Jacksonville. And Sarah introduced a great percentage of the early black settlers to the location. She sold supplies, she had a commissary, anything that the early black settlers needed During the Jim Crow era, African-American families in Florida faced many obstacles. Their freedoms were limited by discriminatory laws and the Ku Klux Klan, who were terrorizing African-Americans locally and all over the South. Between 1900 and 1930, Florida had the highest per capita rate of lynching in the country. Despite oppressive conditions, the African-American business community of Apopka, Florida managed to thrive. One prominent family that prospered in Apopka during that time was the Gladden family. Encouraged by Sarah Mead, Michael Gladden Sr. moved to Apopka from Jacksonville around the year 1910, 
with his wife Elizabeth and their two young sons, Michael Jr. and William, and they opened Gladden's General Store. The Gladden's eldest son, Michael Gladden Jr., had a dream to become a doctor. But when Gladden Sr. died from illness in 1924, he returned home from Morehouse College, a historically black men's college in Atlanta, Georgia, to take over the family general store in Apopka. While Michael Gladden Jr. ran the general store, his brother William operated a popular shoe repair shop, Gladden Shoe Hospital, across the street. They made so many contributions to this community, and their businesses were not just for the whites or for the blacks, they were for both. You know, they provided both brothers. There was another brother, his name was William Gladden uh, Sr. Uh, he was the owner, operator of the shoe hospital. You know, people say he always he was always saving souls, <laughs> uh, souls on shoes, that is, and uh, probably others too, but they brought so much. They did so much in this community. When you say Gladdens, their name and their legacy lives forever. Besides running the general store, Michael Gladden Jr. also operated a laundromat in Apopka for many years. In 1963, Gladden was also one of the founders of the Washington Shore Savings and Loan in Orlando, the first black-owned bank in Florida. Everybody traded and did business with Mr. Gladden. He probably knew every detail about every family because you didn't get through unless you went through Mr. Gladden. If Mr. Gladden said it was okay, it was okay. And being the store was located on, my, it's now Michael Gladden Boulevard, but it was 9th Street, but it's the main thoroughfare to Okoy, Apopka Okoy. So he would have done a lot of trading or people from Okoy would have traded with him because of his location. And so, you know, he was a man to look up to. In 1982, Michael Gladden Jr. died at the age of 83. Ninth Street, where his general store was located, was renamed Michael Gladden Boulevard in his honor. Gladden's general store was torn down in 2003. Before its demolition, Francina Boykin was given permission to retrieve items from the building. She found that Mr. Gladden kept three safes full of the records, deeds, receipts, valuables, and important paperwork for not only his family, but for other black families in Apopka. Francina Boykin. I have in my possession now many Gladden artifacts. I call it the Gladden Collection. I had the opportunity to go into the store before it was demolished. It was heartbreaking, but I retrieved as many items as I could, and they got a safe cracker to open the safes. And in those safes were volumes of documents, deeds, he kept their money, other valuables. He would put money up for safekeeping because you had to realize black people didn't believe in banks. And so uh, Mr. Gladden was their banker. He was their realtor. I even have a um, poll tax receipt that Michael Gladden Sr. had paid his poll taxes in 1920. So those are kind of items that were in Mr. Gladden's safe. And I really appreciate that he left that behind so that someone could still tell his story. The records Francina Boykin saved from Gladden's General Store have been preserved in the Carol E. Mundy Collection at the University of Central Florida in Orlando and at the Museum of the Apopkins, located at 122 East 5th Street in Apopka, Florida. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society. 
and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.